Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It doesn't matter if we don't happen to be firefighters or medical professionals. Our attention does matter for our lives. It matters for all the things on which attention is needed. So we need our attention to think. We need our attention to regulate our emotions. We need our attention to connect socially. And now when those systems, all three of them or any one of them are disrupted or dysregulated, things can really fall out of whack. And so what you were saying regarding personal histories that may lead people to sort of a tendency toward hypervigilance, essentially that floodlight is broad and receptive, but everything kind of feels like a caution sign in your world. You're on high alert. And we know that that leads to things like anxiety disorders and is very common within PTSD. But most of the time, people don't think of that as attentional challenges. And I'm saying mm -hmm. it actually is. And it may be the case that changing how we pay attention may soften the costs of a hypervigilant mind that we experience. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. Building on decades of professional experience, this podcast tackles neurobiology, modern attachment, and more in an honest way that's helpful in healing humans. Your session begins now with Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey, everyone. This is Ann Kelly. Our guest today, Dr. Amishi Jha, is going to change the way you think. I mean, actually, literally. Dr. Jha is a neuroscientist and the author of the bestseller, Peak Mind, Find Your Focus, Own Your Attention, Invest 12 Minutes a Day. So it's that last part that really gets my attention. I mean, what's not to love about that much really important change in a very doable way for most of us? So one of the things that stood out in my conversation with Dr. Jaw is that we miss out of about 50% of our waking lives because we aren't paying attention. So I think of the pages that I've read only to get to the bottom and wonder what I just read and have to start again. Or conversations that I've been in that I realize that I've tuned out for a few minutes and sometimes in the most important part. It's because, you know... It's natural, but our minds are just constantly pulled to our phones, our to-do lists, our inner critics, it may be, and that pulls us to miss out on so much, and it really impacts how we feel, our mood, how resilient we are, and it you know, impacts our relationships with our children, our spouse, our friends. So in today's episode, Dr. Jaw talks about the skills we need to more fully show up. So let me tell you about her. Dr. Jaw is a professor at the University of Miami and is the director of contemplative neuroscience. I love those words together, by the way, for mindfulness research and practice initiative. So her work has been featured at NATO and the World Economic Forum in a TED Talk. And she's also been covered in Scientific American, the New York Times, so much more. In our conversation today, she shares the outcome of years of scientific research on mindfulness training and then brings to us the need to know from this research in terms of the strategies that have been shown to have the greatest impact for change and that have been shown scientifically to really work. You're just going to love her and learn so much. Before we jump in, I want to just say that soon I continue to have this deep passion and energy, which I hope you can feel to bring to you this great information that hopefully deepens your sense of security and builds connection. And we want to keep spreading this information free and far. So to do this, we really need to rely on our sponsors and our Patreons. So if you're out there and you find this information helpful, and if you can, because we know not everyone can, think about becoming a Patreon member. Because for as little as $5 a month, it really, really does help us produce this show. You can also get some great behind the scenes kind of information, as well as ad-free listening. You go to therapistuncensored.com backslash join. Okay, let's jump in. So welcome to the show. So happy to have you here. You're at the University of Miami, and you have dedicated a lot of your life to the study of attention. 
In fact, you have an entire research lab at the University of Miami. Well, tell us a little bit about your lab there, because I'm completely interested in how the lab is set up and the kind of things that you research there. Right. So my career has been devoted to studying the brain basis of attention and, you know, going back to grad school and then postdocing. And I was a professor at the University of Pennsylvania for a decade and then have been down here in Miami for the last decade. And throughout that time, the primary interest still comes from this sort of cognitive neuroscience perspective. How is it that cognitive functions are instantiated within the hardware and software of the brain, if you will? And we've learned a great deal about this. And in my lab, we use functional MRI, which actually are scanners down the hall from the lab. And we use brainwave recordings, EEG, to study really the kind of fundamental architecture of how attention works. But I would say the lab has pivoted away from that being our sole focus over the last 15 years or so. We have become more and more interested. I have really become more and more interested in two things. One is, okay, it's great that we understand how it typically works, but what makes it fail? Because we all know, I mean, I have not met one person where if I say, would you like to pay attention better? They say, no, 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 I'm good. I'm all good. (laughs) It's typically, yes, I need to pay better attention. My attention feels like it's in crisis. And we were starting to see that in a lot of our studies. So yeah, like I said, about 15 years ago, I started really becoming interested, not just in how it works, but how it becomes vulnerable to things like stress, and threat. And by threat, I don't just mean sort of for our physical safety, but our reputation, our sense of justice, etc. And then negative mood. We saw that those tended to be sort of kryptonite conditions. So we're pursuing understanding the effects of those types of influences on degrading attention. And then really it culminated in this sense that, well, we're getting a sense of how attention works and we know that it doesn't work all that well under certain conditions. What can we do about it? How can we actually protect against this? And that became a whole new line of work where we tried a whole bunch of things. And really what we've come to is understanding that mindfulness training is one of the best ways, most reliable ways where we can make stress protective attention. So essentially a form of sort of mental armor for attention looks like it involves mindfulness training. So if you come to the lab, you'll see there's people conducting experiments. They might take you to the scanner. They may hook you up to the EEG recording. We may give you tasks where we're inducing in the lab, stress, threat, and poor mood. But really the bulk of what we do that's not in the lab that requires us to sort of take the lab on the road is working with populations that will experience those extreme circumstances because of the nature of their profession. Whether it's first responders, military service members, medical and nursing professionals, they're going to encounter a lot of demand on their attention and it's consequential that they still perform well. So then what we do is evaluate, partner with these kinds of groups, evaluate how attention functions, then offer mindfulness training and track the effects of the training over time. So you track the effects of their performance, of how well they are able to function in their job or in their roles? Yeah, we track the laboratory metrics of attention. So tasks of, you know, how attention is sustained, what makes it vulnerable, working memory, executive control, various systems of attention. So those kind of core metrics that researchers use to understand the way that attention works, we track those. We also look at psychological health. So we'll ask questions about their mood and well-being and various symptom prevalence in their mind. And, you know, often these are people that identify as psychologically healthy, so we may or may not see anything there. And then we look at the impact of participating in a multi-week mindfulness training program on those same metrics. So we have pre-measures, meaning prior to the training, then they go through the training, and then post-measures. And then we compare to see if there are changes as a function of getting the training or not getting the training under extremely demanding circumstances, things like pre-deployment training or deployment itself for military service members, medical school and medical training for medical students, for example, uh, those types of questions. That's really interesting. So you're able to tell through the engagement out there in the world that going through a set of mindfulness and really learning how to train your mind to focus really makes an extensive difference. I mean, you can see the actual difference. It's not just talk, right? We learn about... I think some right now we think of mindfulness as sort of the elixir to everything, right? Learn mindfulness and it's, it's going to be an amazing shift. But your 
research actually takes it down to brass tacks about what is it? Why is mindfulness such a big impact? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I think it's a funny thing and a really cool thing that mindfulness has become so prevalent in our popular mm -hmm. culture. Never thought in a million years <laughs> that this would happen. Because frankly, when I started my work in this area, and it was really like a slight pivot, when I was at Penn, I was studying the core bases, you know, neural bases of attention. And I was like, I want to pivot just slightly to see training attention. And I want to use this thing called mindfulness. And mostly we knew nothing about it. It was not common. Most people did not know about it. And a lot of my, uh, you know, colleagues, dear colleagues uh, were like, this is probably not the best idea to go in this direction. It's nobody's going to care about it. It's like studying right. something that nobody cares about. And here we are all these years later. It's like, um, yeah, people care. <laughs> but it's almost got the other problem, which has become this panacea for every woe people have mm -hmm. ever experienced. And the understanding of what it is, I think, has become challenged. And so people get confused about what they're supposed to be learning, what it actually does. My interest in my lens as it relates to mindfulness has been with regard to attention. So if we look at these practices, what we realize is that actually it's brain training for attention. And essentially the multiple types of attention that exist, not just, I mean, you mentioned focus, which is the most prominent one, the ability to sort of select certain information and block out other information. But there's other aspects of attention as well. And we're testing the hypothesis that mindfulness training may be able to strengthen attention. And then what we're doing is saying, if it can do this, when we give people enough training, like a mm -hmm. mindfulness-based stress reduction course, which is essentially designed and manualized by my dear colleague and mentor, John Kabat-Zinn, very helpful training modality. Many, many people have participated in these programs and found beneficial effects. So if we start there and say, okay, people may not have enough time, they may not have enough opportunity, they might have not have access to MBSR, they may not care about the kind of stress and symptom reduction that's the framing for something like that training. Can we modify and manipulate the way in which we deliver training almost with this vision of a minimum effective dose, what's the least amount of time and investment they may need to give in order to see the benefits and still continue seeing the same metrics show beneficial effects. In everyday speak, maybe that's like, it's a cost benefit analysis. And y'all have really been studying how much training, how much time, how much to really learn how to implement it in the best way possible so that somebody can go, oh, this is really doable. Exactly. So the first question was just, does it benefit attention? It looked like, yes, repeatedly we're seeing it. And then it was, how can we continue to have it benefit attention with the minimum amount of time demands, especially for these time pressured, high stress groups? Can we back up for just a second? Like when you say, does it benefit attention? Can we talk about what attention is for a minute? I mean, like you said, is, is it focus? And I know when I'm trying to write, my mind wanders. I'm like, okay, I'm going to sit down. I'm ready. I'm going to I'm going to focus. I'm really motivated. And yet I get three sentences in and I realize I'm thirsty. And then I come back down and I sit down and I, then I remember that email I didn't send. My attention on the thing that I sat down to do, sometimes it's a real challenge. So can we just talk about attention? Like what captures our attention? What is attention? I would say it is a fuel for every single thing we do. That's right. the first thing. So there's this foundational capacity of the mind. And at the broadest level, attention just means the brain's capacity to prioritize some information over other information. And then we can start digging into, well, how do you prioritize? Based on what do you prioritize? And one way we prioritize some information over other information is based on the information itself. Mm -hmm. So for example, right now, the information that I want to be attending to is your lovely face and your voice and our conversation, not what's happening outside the door or what's buzzing in my phone, right? That's right. not the content that I should be focusing on. So my priority is this content and not other content. That's what we pretty much mean when we say focus. I'd like to use this analogy of that aspect of brain function, sometimes called the orienting system of the brain, as a flashlight. So oh. wherever we direct that flashlight, we get privileged access to that information. Everything else is sort of darkened away, irrelevant and not really available to us. So as I'm focusing on you, what's going on in my phone is not going to be available to me, right? I'm privileging you over the phone. That flashlight metaphor is really handy because like I said, just like an actual flashlight, wherever we direct it, better information. 
but the flashlight can get yanked. So now let's say, you know, my phone buzzes once I turn off the notification, like I silence it, like stop distracting me. Now, if somebody overpowers my phone, keeps calling me five times in a row, I forgot to pick up my daughter and she's trying to get a hold of me, I will take my flashlight and it'll get pulled by this very salient stimuli. Or if the fire alarm goes off in my house, I'm going to get up and leave. I'm not going to just say, no, my goal right now is to focus on Anne's voice. So the flashlight is capable of being directed, but it can also be pulled. So that's kind of an important thing to keep in mind. Also, that it's not just able to be directed and pulled by external content. We can direct the flashlight internally. In fact, we might think of thinking as the flashlight being directed to thought and linking one thought to the next to the next, what we call thinking, is actually focusing in on certain content and darkening away or really blocking out other content. And internally as well, the internal flashlight can get yanked. So if I have a very alarming thought, right, I'm sitting here I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't turn off the stove in my house. It would pull me away from whatever else I was thinking about and I'd mm-hmm. probably go take action. But it was just the thought that triggered the entire shift in what I'm gonna orient to. Nothing external happened. It was just the thought arising that did that. So. Just to say that flashlight metaphor, very helpful way to think about what focus is and why attention is so beneficial. But it's not the only way that we can prioritize information. Again, with this notion that attention is prioritizing some information over other information. Another way we can prioritize is based on not what it is, but when it's occurring. So now, (laughs) the present moment is what may be the most important. And this is a brain system called the alerting system. And it's essentially keeping our mind almost the exact opposite of a flashlight. Instead of sort of narrow and focused, it's broad and receptive. And what it's most receptive to is what's unfolding in this moment. So if you're driving down the road and you see a flashing yellow light, you're alert to what's going on around you. Maybe something strange, strange traffic patterns, construction, whatever it is. It's not about some distant idea or in the past or something that might occur. It's literally right now, how do I become completely attuned to everything in my environment because I don't know what is relevant yet. So sometimes I'll refer to this as like the floodlight, broad, receptive, not privileging. And again, we have an external floodlight, we have an internal floodlight. We can direct that floodlight to everything going on in terms of this emotions, bodily sensations, thoughts, memories arising within us, as well as what's happening in our environment. So, you know, just to kind of link it back, we can think of attention as privileging based on content based on time. And then the third way, kind of most broadly speaking about attention is prioritizing what's important versus not based on our goals. What is the goal of this moment? And is my behavior aligned with that goal? That's something we call executive control, which, you know, as a clinician, you know a lot about people that have problems with executive control. And the metaphor I like to use for this one is like a juggler. So the juggler's job, just like an executive of a company, is not to only handle one ball at a time in some sense. It's to oversee everything that's occurring, but ensure that whatever's going on right now, that the goals of the organization and the behavior of the organization align. And when they are mismatched to course correct. So executives that don't do that are not very good leaders, right? Don't drop the ball is what we would say, like keep all the balls in the air, but you're not actually doing each individual task, you're overseeing it. So that's the, in the broadest sense, what attention is. And I think the reason I like these metaphors is because we can kind of get a handle on them. We know from our experience that they are different ways that we pay attention beyond focusing. Mm-hmm. And there are ways in which we engage with our external environment and our own minds that relate to those. So going back to what you were saying about mm-hmm. sitting down, having the goal, I'm going to write this email, I'm going to write this report. And then the mind kind of sliding away to whatever, you know, like, thirst, important, or idea that might pull you away, another important thing. So things will disrupt and interfere with attention, Mm -hmm. regardless of the system that's in play. In some sense, this happens so often that now we're at the point where we understand it's the nature of the mind to be distracted in some sense. And the number that often comes up is that 50% of our waking moments, our attention is not in the task at hand but not to kind of fear that, but to be aware of it so that when we find ourselves distracted away from what we're doing, we can acknowledge, okay, this is the nature of the mind. It's not helping me right now that I'm distracted away, 
no need to add a punitive layer on top of that. Like my mind should not wander. It's like it will wander. The reason that it is so important to me to understand attention and mind wandering, this distractibility of the mind is that while most of us experience about 50% of our waking moments for high stress, high demand groups, that number goes up. And when their attention lapses, whether it's a service member or first responder or medical professional, truly the consequences could be life or death. We really do need to figure out how to help protect those individuals to the vulnerabilities of all of our minds, but for them, it's quite consequential. And it seems like there's a lot of information processing that has to be happening for us at all times to make this decision. Am I going to do a flashlight? Do I have the room to pay attention to the floodlight, if you will? So what you're saying, the executive part is part of making that decision. Where am I going to direct my light? Can I relax and focus with my flashlight if my floodlight feels safe or doesn't feel safe, I imagine? And if I'm out in a military zone or something like that, I can't actually turn off my flood, right? I can't be out of the moment and just put my flashlight on something because that could be life or death. That sounds exhausting. But I think that that part probably isn't all that exhausting. We're built for that. We're built to Mm -hmm. direct when we want to, to be receptive when we need to. And sure, executive control drives the whole thing, but oftentimes we're just responding to what's happening to us. So when we see that flashing yellow light, we aren't really deciding, oh, I should pay attention to what's happening right. right now. You just will. If you're in the middle of a very deep conversation with somebody and there's difficulty in the traffic pattern, you'll just stop talking and now broadly be receptive to what's going on. So we're actually very, very skilled at this. I think the part that can become overwhelming and taxing is when the demands are high and protracted and when we mm-hmm. engage in behaviors that actually make things so much worse like multitasking or attempting to multitask, ruminating, catastrophizing. These are ways in which we're actually spending out our attentional fuel much more than we need to. And it ends up that unfortunately just saying, oh, don't do that. Well, maybe right. from multitasking you can say, don't do that. But for rumination and catastrophizing, I mean, again, I'm talking to a clinician, so I know you know this inside and out. Simply saying, don't do it is not enough. <laughs> in fact, it'll probably backfire if you say that. Right, because now you have what you were saying earlier, that kind of self criticalness, like, ah, I'm doing that. I'm doing that thing. Don't do that. Don't do that. Which just adds to all the distractibility, I imagine, of being able to do what it is you want and to be present and focused. And oftentimes you'll say, don't do that. And you'll end up doing it again anyway. Like you don't really, you're not, if you're not constantly monitoring what you're doing, you're going to default to certain mind tendencies. Like you may say, stop ruminating and distract yourself with something. A few minutes later, you might be back to ruminating without knowing it, landing in it without your knowledge. So that's why mindfulness training can be so helpful is because instead of commanding ourselves to do Mm -hmm. things a certain way, we're training our mind to shift the sort of default way attention operates Mm -hmm. so that we can lean on it much more readily. You know, when you mention the default way, you know, we're talking about those that have high demands, the military, first responders. On our podcast, we talk a lot about attachment and interpersonal neurobiology and how the way we were raised impacts the way we receive information and whether we can rule it out or not. And for some of us that were raised in such a way that we might have more of a preoccupied way of living in the world where we've been trained that we have to keep a vigilance and watch for everything because our environment hasn't been safe enough or consistent enough. Those are the individuals that often have that kind of rumination and the thoughts clearing, et cetera, that it's a similar kind. I mean, obviously it's not the same as being out there in the military and your life at threat, but some of us walk around with a lot more vigilance, I imagine, paying attention to one part of our attention system rather than the other. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons I I wrote my book, Peak Mind, was because I said, after seeing all these types of groups and the costs of high stress, high demand intervals on them, I mean, I quickly realized, like, essentially all of us are high demand, time pressured groups. And this was before COVID. (laughs) I mean, when COVID happened, I was like, we're truly all in a global high stress interval together. That is described by what these service members often call VUCA situations, right? V, volatile, U, uncertain, C, complex, A, ambiguous. That is the world. And I know that's not what you're getting at. You're really talking about sort of the personal histories that may lead to that. But I think it's quite prevalent. And frankly, for our own well-being, 
it doesn't matter if we don't happen to be firefighters or medical professionals. Our attention does matter for our lives. It matters for all the things on which attention is needed. So we need our attention to think. We need our attention to regulate our emotions. We need our attention to connect socially. And now when those systems, all three of them or any one of them, are disrupted or dysregulated, things can really fall out of whack. And so what you were saying regarding personal histories that may lead people to sort of a tendency toward hypervigilance, essentially that floodlight is broad and receptive, but everything kind of feels like a caution sign in your world. You're on high alert. And we know that that leads to things like anxiety disorders and is very common within PTSD. But most of the time, people don't think of that as attentional challenges. And I'm saying mm -hmm. it actually is. And it may be the case that changing how we pay attention may soften the costs of a hypervigilant mind that we experience. And if you don't think of it as an attentional thing, you're much more likely to be critical of yourself. Like, why can't I keep my mind focused? And to be able to go, wait, this is really an attention thing. I can't turn my floodlight off because if I put my flashlight on something, something on my flank is going to take a hold of me. We talk a lot about mindfulness being important. And I really want to talk more specifically about what mindfulness is. But to be able to slow the system down enough to be able to attend at any level really shifts the biology. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we talked about the floodlight potentially being on overdrive for hypervigilance. It could be the flashlights uh, hyperfixated during some of the depression, where we just keep right. shining the light on depressogenic thought. It could be that with something like ADD, the juggler is constantly dropping the ball, like the goals are not being maintained or the behavior is not being corrected to be aligned with the goals. So when we start thinking about psychological challenges and psychological disorders from this attentional point of view, the urgency to try to do something with attention more directly becomes more key. You know, I'm not a clinician, I'm a neuroscientist, so I knew that my tools were going to have to be different than a clinician's tools. And I happen to know a lot about the brain system of attention. So what I was interested in finding out is how might we train attention so that people have more agency with regard to their flashlight, knowing where it is, knowing where it is when we want to move it back and having the capacity to move it in that way? How do we dial down an overly active floodlight? How do we get the juggler online so the juggler's not dropping the balls? I mean, these are all ways to think about training different aspects of attention to improve our functioning, which have these consequences for psychological health as well. And so where does mindfulness fit into all of this? In some sense, I kept thinking, well, what are the things that pull us away? What are the things that drive up psychological challenges, for example, and distractibility. You already mentioned, I think, the biggest culprit, which I kind of put into the broader category of mental time travel. So, you know, the same part of the brain that's a key node for all of these systems of attention, the frontal lobes, is also capable of creating alternate realities that are displaced in place and time. So this capacity to be not in this moment, but somewhere else, is actually a real gift of human evolution. We inherited this capacity. But mental time travel also has a dark side, if you will. <laughs> and what I mean by mental time travel, just to kind of make it more plain, and it connects back to your question regarding mindfulness, not being in the present moment. And I always think of this kind of metaphor of like a um, MP3 player. So we can rewind the mind, which means that we can very easily, without much effort, reflect on the past, events that have already happened. We can replay those with as much granularity as possible. Sometimes mm -hmm. we're replaying them often, whether we're savoring past memories or trying to recall some details about an event that occurred. For students, it might be learning information then trying to really hold it in mind for a test. Or we're fast forwarding, planning the next thing that might occur with, with again, exquisite precision. And these are really important things to be able to do. Mental time travel is a really, really useful thing to do. But like I said, under certain circumstances, especially those that involve stress, threat, and negative mood, we now engage in mental time travel more often and more dysfunctionally. Now we're rewinding the mind and we are ruminating on something that's occurred and it's not serving us or we're fast forwarding and we're catastrophizing. So when we do that, when we're in the past or the future, Functionally or dysfunctionally, our attention is also in the past or the future. 
and it's not available for this moment. So that mental time travel we might call mind wandering, having an off task thought during an ongoing task or activity. And when that happens, we know more errors happen. You're mm-hmm. not gonna get a lot of good learning going on because you're kind of right. out of it. You're not present to what's going on right now. You're gonna make mistakes. And it ends up that it drives down mood. In fact, one of the very first papers on mind wandering said, a wandering mind is an unhappy mind because there was this relationship between not being in the present moment, being on fast forward and reverse, and the subsequent moment is a little bit dysphoria or negative mood. So why mindfulness? Well, if attention, when it's not functioning properly, whether it's a floodlight, flashlight, juggler, causes problems for us, and if attention is prone to getting hijacked when it is not in this moment, but in fast forward or reverse, what if we could train the mind to be present centered more often? and watch for where it is so that we can bring it back to being present centered when we need to. So in some sense, I started seeing that that was going to be key to helping attention. It wasn't gonna be positive thinking. It probably wasn't gonna be you know, some kind of technological solution, but it was training the mind to become more present centered. And I was very fortunate that through a series of coincidences in some sense, I learned that there is this thing that's been around for thousands of years called mindfulness meditation. And we can actually give people exercises to cultivate a present-centered mode. So in some sense, to me, mindfulness, the way I would kind of define it or describe it is it's a mental mode. It's like a way of making the mind that is paying attention to the present moment experience without what I call you know conceptual elaboration, having a concept and then kind of hyperlinking to related concepts or without really judgmental thinking, if you want to put it that way and without emotional reactivity. So it's like, keep, if you think of that MP3 metaphor, it's keeping that button on play to experience the raw data of the moment to moment unfolding of our lives. And when we do that, a couple of things happen. We're not lost in this fast forward rewind. We're able to get what's going on right now. And we can orient our experience with much better precision and without an overlay of some story or editorializing regarding what's occurring. So that became the mission is to actually cultivate mindfulness to see if it would protect attention based on these ideas. Why do you think it is so hard for us to do that? Like what is our tendency to go into the rumination or the prediction of the future? Because you said 50% of the time, for most of us, which I think it really helps normalize it, doesn't it? That it's really hard to be in this moment, partly, I guess, the power of association, you see something, you smell something, it brings you to the past, triggers the future. Why do you think it's so hard for us in general? I don't know as one way to put it, like meaning, I don't know why the brain was designed this way. I wasn't around to see human evolution, but what I know is that this is happening not by accident or not by flaw, but by design. The human brain, it's so metabolically costly to run the brain. It's the most Mm -hmm. metabolically costly organ we've got. And if half of our time we're doing this thing called mind wandering, it must serve a purpose. And we can take some guesses, right? That, well, our evolutionary ancestors probably wouldn't have survived if they were hyper-focused or overly vigilant or so present-centered that they couldn't predict what was going to happen in the future or they couldn't reflect on what they learned in the past. So being able to mentally time travel, again, it's advantaged us because it could allow us to displace ourselves in place and time, which gave us a leg above. I mean, you know, a lot of other organisms that don't have that power. It probably serves other functions as well. Some of the kind of cutting edge ideas is that mind wandering may help the formation of memories. In some ways, if you experience something like, you know, we're having this conversation now, Now you're going for a walk, you know, maybe you're walking your dog. I know it might happen to me later today. And something about this conversation will just pop into my head. I'm not thinking, what did I do today? It just pops into my head. Oh, remember when Anne said da 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 da? Why did that occur? I mean, in some sense, I got pulled into that without my volition. One idea is that the perseverance of events that are displaced in time and place help create memories. It's like a replay function that may help consolidate memories. So The broadest way to answer your question is, I don't know exactly why, but I do know that it's often, it's reliably happening. And in some sense, I would love for people to get a normalized sense of its occurrence instead of getting angry at their poor brains for mind wandering. And then I'd say, let's advantage ourselves by using the training tools that are available so that we can be our best selves in the presence of this tendency of mind. The mind may wander, but we can cultivate through mindfulness training 
awareness of where our mind is. And we can cultivate the capacity of controlling our mind's focus so we can return it where we want it to be. And we can cultivate it to hold the goals of the moment more crisply and clearly. So it's like, if this is the way the mind functions, there is a way to train it not to dissolve mind wandering. It may be the way it happens, but at least I'm adding these extra tools so that I'm better functioning in the face of mind wandering happening 50% of my waking moments. So if I'm walking and I'm thinking, oh, this was so interesting, what we were just talking about, and I notice that my mind is bringing me back to the conversation I had earlier in the, in the day, and I'm aware of it, and it's like, now I'm on my walk, and I really have time. I'm away from my kids. So I'm going to let that information come in, a little bit of a, a decision, if you will, so an awareness of what my mind is doing that helps me be present with it. Absolutely. And that's the bigger thing. It's not so much that the mind wanders. It's that typically when it wanders by default, we lack awareness of its wandering. So, right. you know, you might have to get to the bottom of the page before you realize I have no idea what I read. Oh my gosh, I've done that so many times. So how do we train ourselves to be more aware moment by moment, monitoring what our attention is doing so that we can course correct if needed? And that's mm -hmm. what we're adding with this present-centered orientation because when we say bring attention to our present moment experience, the present moment experience may be I'm completely stuck in the past. That is what's happening right now, but I'm aware of that. And then I can make a decision of whether I want to stay in the past or actually want to do something to potentially not have that be what my mental content is filled with. But if I have no awareness of what's going on in most moments, the chances of me course correcting are basically zero. If we think of attention just in this moment of being present we're talking about attention in a lot of ways, but if we're talking about being more aware of harnessing our attention, I want to be here with you. I don't want to be distracted by my next question or thinking about what I should have asked you a few minutes ago and moments I missed. If I want to be really present and I'm thinking about that level of attunement, there's a way that it centers me then. In bringing something to this moment, you're saying that the awareness that my mind wanders and gently bringing it back is something that I have some agency over. But if I am not aware, then you're going to end up stopping the conversation and I'm going to have been in another thought and be distracted and come back. And that happens a lot for us, right? If we're not aware, then we really have traveled. And then something has to tap us back in, then we've missed out on quite a bit of presence, you know, the presence of being in our lives. And the term would be meta-awareness, mm -hmm. awareness of the moment-to-moment -moment thoughts, feelings, processes that are occurring in our mind. Essentially, it's as if they didn't happen because our awareness is sort of the entry point for acknowledging our experience of creating memories about the experience, integrating information about what's occurring. All of that requires an awareness of what's going on. So it's like bringing ourselves back into this moment with that meta-awareness enhances everything. That's what I mean when I say peak mind. It's it's not that you're some successory and like, yeah, I did it. I, I'm just awesome at everything. It's that you're fully in whatever you're in. You're not lost. You're right. there for it. And that moment could be actually grief stricken or feeling a lot of sadness or very excited and elated and joyful. Any of those kinds of experience that are part of the human repertoire if we are distracted away or not aware, we missed out on the full mm -hmm. spectrum of the human experience. And the thing is that happens often and we can do something to return ourselves. I mean, you use the term centering. It's like we can kind of bring ourselves back to that by training the mind in this way. The reason I think about the centering, I think of bringing it back to my language of attachment, when we try to talk about individuals be finding a more secure self, it's talking about the integration of the mind and the body. If we're in our mind and we're going back and forth, it makes us not very aware of our own body, right? Like our sensations in our body and our heart rates and the lack of presence in that really can pull you out of a relationship, out of a moment with somebody else as well. You know, and I think that this is a, really a cutting edge topic within both attention research and mindfulness research. In fact, it's one of the topics of uh, one of the grants I'm running right now, which is, you know, if you think about the flashlight or the floodlight, what is the, one of the most powerful utilities of the flashlight to direct it toward other people, right? right? To the capacity to actually direct it toward another person or even the floodlight being situationally aware. 
That situation could be the situation within our bodies or the situation that's surrounding us or the situation as it involves other people. So these are functions that we don't want to just hold for personal use, but in the interaction and the relational context. So this is where I think the interpersonal is very, very exciting. And some of the projects that we're doing now, including this new grant, is looking at team-based mindfulness or collective mindfulness. You know, this notion that we each have a mental model of what's going on in this moment. How do we better share that mental right. model? How do we course correct when we're not on the same page? And how do I willfully show up for you in a way that makes you experience the impact of your presence on me? It's going to be through being attentive. And that's not always easy, is it? I was thinking about particularly in relationships, because one of the things you said earlier that really impact our ability to focus is attention and mood. And I think of getting in conflict with somebody and how dysregulated we get, which really pulls us out of our ability to attend to somebody else, doesn't it? We're maybe over attending to our own brains and our own beliefs and the past of what's happened or the catastrophe of the future and being in the present moment with somebody is almost impossible at that time. And we're operating with a story or a narrative that's in our own thoughts, but may not be shared by the other person, right? So this is one of the biggest challenges, but it's also one of the biggest points of power of attention. If we can understand how we've been pulled away and that we've been pulled away, we may be able to bring ourselves back. So this is where the practice piece is important. It's not just about noticing what's going on. It's about having that control over the flashlight to bring it back willfully. Like, yes, you know, how do I orient toward the fact that I had this very conflictual conversation with somebody and now I'm going to have this conversation with you? How do I pivot my mind to focus on you? I have to acknowledge that, yes, that was a very difficult moment I had 10 minutes ago. Not true. I'm fine. And nothing happened 10 minutes ago for me. But if it had, it was like acknowledging Mm -hmm. that, but then still taking the flashlight and being here for what we're doing now. And it ends up that mindfulness practices can exercise all of those things with something like mindfulness of the breath or, you know, what I call the find your flashlight practice in my book. It's essentially an opportunity to focus on breath related sensations. So we have a target for that flashlight toward the breath. We're doing this watchful floodlight for anywhere that our mind may go, noticing where the mind is moment by moment. So we're exercising the floodlight. And then we're using executive control to say, is my flashlight where I want it to be if I notice that it's off track? So it's strengthening all of those aspects of attention. And through that, we're cultivating this kind of better, I don't know, befriending of our own mind so that we can trust that when I have a difficult conversation, I can feel that in my body, in my mind. I'm there for it. I didn't go away. I didn't dissociate from it. I felt it. And in this moment, I can bring my attention right here for what's before me. Right. And how do you hold all of that? It takes practice. And that's the benefits of having an exercise regime for the mind, like mindfulness training. Let's talk about that for a minute, because if we wait to the moment and say, oh, I'm supposed to now I'm in the midst of this moment and now I'm supposed to be mindful, especially when we're dysregulated, that's not or, or in a high stress situation or if I'm thinking about students and they're overwhelmed with the tests that they have the next day. And we say, oh, just be mindful in the moment. That's going to be a lot harder to achieve. And so one of the things you're talking about is that just like our exercise, that mindfulness is about something that we can actually work on and practice and develop that skill and that we need ongoing practice to be able to improve it in the moment. Is that right? Absolutely. Like from a brain training perspective, each of those systems we talked about of attention is supported by a distinct neural network. Mind wandering is also supported by a network. I mean, something called the default mode network is involved in a lot of that internal meandering that we do. And these networks tend to be not only separate from each other, but like mutually inhibitory. Mm -hmm. So if I'm very much lost in thought, the chances of me appropriately focusing on the external environment are going to be less. And you, can, you know this from your own experience. If you're, if you're really, the flashlight is really honed in on something you're reading or focusing on, somebody walks into the room, you're probably not going to, it's going to take a minute to be like, what'd you say? Because the floodlight is a little bit dampened down. So mm-hmm. in, by their nature in the brain, these brain networks are known, they're coordinated, and they're inhibiting and fighting with each other. And so when I think about what mindfulness is, it's training the coordination of these networks. It's training mm-hmm. their improved healthfulness in the individual functioning and the kind of passing the baton between who gets prominence in my moment to moment. 
experience comes from training them as well. So yeah, it's, it's truly is exercise for the mind. And in the same way, you know, just like you were describing with the students, nobody would ever say, if you want to be physically fit, wait to the moment that you need to use your muscles and then just drop to the ground and start doing reps, right? That's like, no, of course you got to embody physical excellence for there to be the capacity for you to benefit from it. We have to think of the mind the same way. And, you know, my broadest sort of passion is to really promote that cultural shift that the mind, the brain, just like the body needs to be trained for daily psychological wellness in the same way the body needs exercise to stay physically healthy. But we just don't think of the mind in the same way. And I think we should. What are the things that you would recommend if we were going to develop a daily practice, just like we did a workout practice? What are the things that you're saying that would be a daily practice that could really build the muscle of the mind to be able to attend, to be able to mindfully be in ourselves in the moment? What would you recommend? So the good news for me is that I didn't have to start from scratch. I could lean on people that have been doing this forever. And like I said, millennia old practices. So my interest was not so much in inventing things that have never been discovered or appreciated before, but how can we tailor them for these unusual contexts where people aren't going to a clinic for chronic pain or experiencing depression. So they want to get some kind of therapy. I'm talking about people that are functioning in their jobs and see themselves as not needing anything. Like I rise to the challenge. I deal with stressful circumstances all the time. I'm fine. You know, how do we appeal to them? These are the kinds of populations that we work with. And at some level, it's all of us. We all want to perform at our best and be successful. And we don't want to see ourselves as in need of constant repair, though, frankly, all of us are in constant need of repair ourselves ourselves every day. So how do we do that was the big question I was asking. And what I mean by I can lean on people that have been doing this for a while is, as we were talking about earlier, mindfulness-based stress reduction was a manualized eight-week program that has been around for 30 years. And so the starting point that was used in some of our early work was that kind of a model, an eight-week model, about 24 plus hours of daily training, 45 minutes of home practice. And what we quickly discovered is that nobody's doing 45 minutes of home practice. (laughs) They just don't have the time. And frankly, 24 hours was a lot to fit into very, very busy schedules. So part of my personal interest was we know what metrics are sensitive to mindfulness training being beneficial as it relates to attention and mood, et cetera. Let's hold the metrics the same. Let's evaluate the same things, but let's change up what the training program is. Let's see if we can figure out what the most important aspects are that the training program must have. And since we have to cut time to make it more appropriate for time pressured people, let's just look at the components of what most of these programs have. And they typically have practice, the workout, you could say, discussion around the damaging effects of stress and the beneficial effects of mindfulness training, and then some discussion around the practice itself. So some of the initial studies were just to say, okay, let's take these 24 hour programs, like break them apart. First of all, let's just have less talking. Fine. We got rid of eight hours. <laughs> so we're now we're down to 16 hours. If we look at what's left in the 16 hours, it's still kind of practice related discussion and the practice itself. So I, I wanted to kind of parse the two and have a practice focused eight hour training and a what I call didactic or merely conversation focused training and see if it's like physical exercise. I mean, none of us would want to pay for a personal trainer to go to a gym and then tell us how great exercises is like, no, no, just do the reps show me how to do them and do them with me or guide me to do them. And essentially that's what we found out that the practice focused program is much better than the discussing all the benefits about the practice or even discussing the practice itself. So that gave us a clue, like we might be able to go all the way down to eight hours. And then it was just a matter of figuring out what are the key practices within this that people should be doing? How much of the eight hours should be spent practicing? And at some point, what we realized, just to really foreshadow, I'm kind of describing eight years of research in like a couple sentences, but to just say it makes sense. And it really following the lessons learned from physical exercise makes sense. You want to do the exercises. You want to focus on the exercises, make sure they're done well. And then the exercises themselves are part of this sort of canon of mindfulness practices, things like focused attention practices, like breath related focused attention, and then open monitoring practices where we're practicing allowing whatever occurs in the mind to appear without holding on to it. But one other thing I wanted to just mention is that as we found ourselves to be successful in these variety of settings, a big problem emerged, which is that like more people want the training, but we don't have a lot of trainers. 
because oh, wow. very few people know what it's like to be a firefighter and a mindfulness expert or even a medical practicing physician and a mindfulness expert or in a business context, a sales rep and a mindfulness. So what we were learning is that expertise with regard to the context really helps fast track the learning because I don't need to train somebody on what the challenges they are experiencing in their particular right. professional setting. The trainer already knows, but very few people that have that context knowledge have mindfulness expertise. So one of the things we've done over the last several years is build a program from the ground up, something called mindfulness-based attention training. And really it just came through a series of projects we were doing for the DOD to say, let's try to get the most sort of lean and straightforward training program so that people that have context expertise in a variety of settings, school teachers, nurses, medical school faculty, military service members, military spouses, we just did a project with them. Let's have a program. We can train them up to get the mindfulness familiarity in as little as 10 to 12 weeks. So they learn the program mm -hmm. and mindfulness for themselves. Then they take another six to eight weeks and learn how to deliver it. And then let's test out in those same attentional metrics to see if they're changing. And I'm very happy to see that we're seeing the same kind of benefits. So now trained trainers can deliver mindfulness training in these very contextualized settings and we see benefits. And what kind of benefits are you seeing? What is the actual outcome variable? The outcome variables would be how much mind wandering there is during an experimental task of sustained attention, performance on the sustained attention task, mood, depression, anxiety, stress levels, positive and negative mood, and social functioning. What's the quality of your relationships? Do you feel like there's more team cohesion? And actual performance. What I mean by that is, for example, we just did a project with military service members where their weapons qualifications, like where they have to actually, you know, shoot when they should and not shoot when they shouldn't, mm. those scores were improved. So there's wow. more precision of how they're functioning. Same thing that's known for, you know, academic achievement can be benefited by mindfulness training. So it's almost like the major domains of the field of mindfulness research benefits for the body, the mind, relationships and performance we're looking into now with this train the trainer approach to see if a minimum effective dose can actually provide these benefits. Oh, that's wonderful. And do you see the general benefits lasting over a period of time? They go through the training and then they show improved performance, improve attention, improve mood. But down the road, what do you find out? Excellent question, because that's the thing, right? It's like, that's great that when we were with you and you were doing the practices, you benefited. Right. That's awesome. But what happens when we're not with you anymore? Unfortunately, what I can tell you is that when we no longer are guiding or proctoring practice, daily practice, which we haven't talked about yet, but I, I should just mention that, when we disengage from them and they no longer practice, the effects go away. But if they no longer practice daily mindfulness, okay. If they no longer practice daily, the effects go away. Those that actually are supported to practice and practice daily, they maintain the benefits. The longest we've tracked is probably about four weeks out, sometimes eight weeks out. But when they don't practice and on an individual level, they don't maintain the benefits, which at some level, it's like, well, that makes sense if the way that we're thinking about the brain being trained is like the body. You know, you could be Olympic level athlete, but if you're a couch potato for a couple of years, you're not going to be able to just get back right. out there and nail it on, <laughs> on running a marathon or whatever you're doing. That I think is the next kind of frontier. It's like, how do we best support people after the formal training is over. And so, you know, we're developing, we're, we have an app that we've developed. It's just supportive ways to get people to continue practicing beyond our touch point or footprint with the groups that we're working with. But the other thing, just to say, because we haven't really talked about practice, you know, we did a lot on kind of trying to get the formal program condensed. As you remember me saying, you know, mindfulness-based stress reduction requires 45 minutes of practice a day. Nobody was doing that. So we started taking sort of a data emergent approach. Like, what are they actually doing? when they actually benefit. And the number that we were triangulating on was about 12 to 15 minutes a day. Mm -hmm. And so now our studies don't even ask people to do more. It's like, do it every day, guided practice, 12 minutes a day. And sometimes we'll push it to 15. So we're asking them to practice three to five times a week, about 12 to 15 minutes a day. And when they do that, oh. we see these beneficial effects. Now, just like physical activity, the more they do, the more they benefit. So. I see this as like an entry ramp, almost like a couch to 5K to get yourself kind of in that mode of learning about mindfulness and practicing and then go as far as you'd like after that because it will continue to benefit you. 
I wonder if it's just like exercise too. Once you actually get off the couch and you do the 12 minutes, then doing the next one, you start to see the benefits, right? Like, oh my gosh, this feels so good. And I imagine it's the same for this. It's like you start to see the benefits after 12. And to be able to start for 12 or 15 minutes, well, that's doable. You know, thinking of the students out there or the teachers under intense stress right now, being able to do that. That's the main thing. It's like mindfulness could be the most beneficial thing. But if the bar is too high for people to begin, it's a useless effort. So that was a serious question I wanted to undertake. Not because I think that things should always be the minimum effective dose, but because I wanted people to feel welcomed and capable of beginning. And I didn't want to offer them so little that it wasn't going to be effective. So I wanted to know from sort of a rigorous scientific point of view of, let me see what are the number of minutes that actually it takes to be a minimum effective dose and don't do less than that because probably it won't benefit you. Also take the longest on-ramp that you need to get to that minimum dose. Because if you start out by saying, I'm going to do 12 minutes a day, you may give up the next day. So start out with three minutes a day, start with a minute a day, ramp yourself up to 12 minutes, maintain there, and then go beyond that if you choose to. So it really is to make it much more practical and accessible. As long as our data supported, it was worth doing. What I love about that is it makes it so doable for those of us out there. Also for those of us out there thinking about even trying to get their attention in a relationship or in the listening aspects and things like that, that people are complaining about because you can't show up with your presence. And this is a real doable, this isn't like, let's go change your personality. Let's go back into your childhood and see if we can alter it. So you show up better in your relationships. This is instead something that you can do 12 minutes a day, build the exercise that you will really intensely increase your presence inside yourself, but also in your ability to focus in your relationships or at work or at your studies. It's a real doable, well-researched outcome that you can start seeing the benefits right away. I love it. Yeah. The subtitle of my book is Find Your Focus, Own Your Attention, Invest 12 Minutes a Day. And it really was like, that's the reason we're doing this. We're doing this because we want to have more agency over our mind. And most of us could say, okay, I'll give it a shot for that amount of time. It wasn't due a minute a day because we were finding that that wasn't sufficient. It was the threshold that we saw in our research over and over again is a range for seeing beneficial effects. So yeah, that's absolutely is an invitation for people to try it out. So your book is Peak Mind and in the book, you walk through the how-tos. I could talk to you for a whole other hour easily, but your book really does the how-to, how to do a mindfulness practice in a way that is going to bring an outcome to you. Not just one, but a suite. So really following the same suite of practices that we've given all these groups, whether it's football players, military spouses, HR professionals, students, undergraduates, it's the suite that we, we offer over and over again that we've practiced about 12 to 15 minutes a day, people find beneficial effects. So the book is actually my journey into explaining why these things, you know, just sort of the conversation we had now, but understanding the nature of why the mind is this way, what it's like, and then what we can do to actually work with our own mind and exercise it using this mindfulness practice suite. That's very hopeful. I'm one of those, if I had to start with 45, I do actually do some meditation. Let me ask you that one question. Do you equate meditation and mindfulness as one and the same people often say meditation, mindful? So mindfulness is a subtype of meditation. I would say it's funny that with the Olympics going on, so meditation is like the term sports. It's a broad umbrella term. And to me, meditation is engaging in specific mental practices to cultivate specific mental qualities. It's like Mm -hmm. doing some stuff daily, regularly, repeatedly to get a particular outcome. Now that's sort of the most, I don't know, feels a little sterilized to say that, but we know that meditation is part of the world's wisdom traditions. Literally every cultural, spiritual, religious tradition has an aspect of do these things to get this outcome for the betterment of your mind, for your peace, for the wellness of the community, et cetera. So it is a broader category and the key is the details. So just like sports is a category, meditation is a kind of activity you do, but being an Olympic level gymnast, very different than being an Olympic level sprinter or whatever, a swimmer and what you do matters. So mindfulness meditation, you know, there's many forms, contemplative practices. So there could be compassion meditation, transcendental meditation. Mindfulness meditation is this specific set of practices that are aiming to cultivate present-centered, non-judgmental attention. 
it's a mental mode. It's a way of making the mind. It's an intrinsic capacity we have. If we were never trained on mindfulness, we still have the capability of being in that mode. But to hold it there, to cultivate it, to have it be there on demand and on command requires meditation practice. That's really helpful. Even as you were saying it, like as to hold it there and hold it there, I was realizing how much it does take time to build that muscle, doesn't it? As you, even as you were saying those words, I'm like, to hold your attention in the present for 12 minutes and to keep gently bringing it back. It's a challenge, but you really highlight it's a worthwhile one. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. I think our listeners are going to gain so much from it and for you to take your time and come on. I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much. I hope you got as much out of this program as I did. And if you did, take a moment to rate and review us. That always helps. It helps other people find us is what that does. Also, as I mentioned, if you can think about becoming a Patreon member at Therapist Uncensored backslash join. All right. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. 